Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Uh, Ash, my friend, do you wanna do you wanna lead us in? Oh, you know, I might I might as well. I might as well. So, uh, has anyone else uh, considered my offer to invest in big pontoon bicycle? <laughs> uh, I think big pontoons are gonna make a really strong comeback after the collapse of Twitter. I've already invested heavily in pontoon bicycles where you can drag an advertisement for Coca-Cola that has 140 characters on it behind you. Well, uh, I I really need to diversify my portfolio of AI art of my waifus. Uh, like it's <laughs> it's been doing really really well. Uh, I have low. I'm 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 like obscenely rich, but I really need to get out of the art game. The uh, um, the the pontoon bicycle is pulling an advertisement at 0.25 miles per hour, and it's just Ahigao face. <laughs> it's just hentai that it's not being, it's not going anywhere. It's just sitting there on the beach as someone pedals furiously, trying to <laughs> please buy my as- art. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, please no, please buy my uh, my NFTs. <laughs> Which, no, just no movement and people just yelling. <laughs> oh, welcome, welcome everyone uh, to the Color Me Board Ape, Board Ape Yacht Club episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, yes. Hello, everybody. Hello. We are so excited that um. Like for people who are not based in the U.S., I'm sure you will know that the U.S. has certain states have certain reputations, certain stereotypes, and there is a mythical figure that walks through the cultural consciousness of our perception of a certain kind of America, a certain a certain state in America. I I refer to, of course, the the mythical cryptid known only. As Florida man, and I am delighted to say that we have Florida man. the The only Florida man is back on HV. Labor Kyle is here. Yeah, I've I've crawled out of the uh, swamps of Mayaka State Forest to yet again talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis. Um, uh. Yeah, I'm just I'm always happy to be here. We we know it. We we all everyone already knows. We've gotten to the point everyone knows what's up already. So hey everybody. As unofficial unofficial third host, Florida man, uh, our favorite cryptid Labor Kyle. Yep. Absolutely. Uh Labor Kyle has 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 been with us to talk about 2000, 2000 maniacs has been with us to talk about uh, art house cinema god Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> Um, and it's maybe responsible for bringing forward the the most evil uh, of the HV episodes where we talked about gigant- the, the gigantic babies of neoliberalism for two hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm still uh, proud of that. That, that episode is so that episode is so powerful. Like it's it's kind of like I keep forgetting that we did that, and every time I see it pop back up, I'm I, I'm just like in awe of the horror we created. Oftentimes, it's people admitting that we managed to get them to watch that movie. I'm not gonna lie; I didn't think as many people would end up going and watching it as have told me, uh, or slash blamed me for that. Which you know, I mean, that's the that's the risk <laughs> you take from making art, you know, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Big Boss Baby owes you a check. <laughs> <laughs> but we we are we are here to continue our exploration of Hirschwood and Lewis. We are. Uh, I'm. I am. I am. This is going to be a highbrow episode as we are talking about color me blood red. <laughs> Now I am I am literally on the edge of my seat, Ash, as I ask you my favorite question of every episode, which is would you mind explaining to me, to Kyle, to to all of Florida, what is HGL's Color Me Blood Red about? Uh it's 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 about big big naturals, painterly, uh high art style, uh titties, girlfriend, goth, milkmaid, Victorian, Romanesque. <laughs> Awuga. <laughs> cartoon sound effects. He's a here, giant, here. giant uh, cartoon werewolf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In perhaps the most telling scene of Color Me Blood Red, our sadistic painter Adam Sorg flips and reorients a painting of his on sale at the Farnsworth Art Gallery. The proprietor of the gallery quickly returns the painting to its original orientation. Sorg is asking us not just which way is up, but who gets to decide the very grounds on which the dynamics of orientation are decided. We can approach Color Me Blood Red as an attempt to dialectically answer Peter Brook's distinction between the holy and the rough when it comes to theater. Brook writes, If the holy makes a world in which prayer is more real than a belch, in the rough theater, it is the other way around. Herschel Gordon Lewis might be asking us to cast that dichotomy down in favor for a world wherein there is nothing more holy, or perhaps more profane, than the rough and dying scream. Sorg's artwork moves from trite to divine through an involuntary communion with stolen blood. Much like the labor theory of value, Sorg's artwork is only ever worth anything to the extent that people are made to bleed and ultimately die for it. Artwork, thus bound to commodity, becomes something different altogether. It becomes more alive than the life which bled to create it. In the words of John Berger, We are static. They, the advertisements, are dynamic. Our blood ceases to be ours and we become a pigment that, when extracted, becomes worth more to capital than our lives could ever be. In the end, Sorg's work burns in a pile as his body rots. All of the pain, suffering, and pollution of Sorg's work becomes ephemeral. An impact with no crater. NFTs, viral tweets, and the last, greatest movie of the year are all just ashes in the breeze on a horrifically muggy winter afternoon. We are bleeding. We have no choice in the matter. Our only course is to regain agency and choose the direction in which our blood flows. We will die for the creation of something greater than ourselves, but what will that be? Perhaps we can find out as we discuss Herschel Gordon Lewis's Color Me Blood Red. Take me out to the ball game, Dad. They're playing games at night. <laughs> Holy bananas, it's a girl's leg. That's all I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think easily maybe the best line of dialogue I've heard in a film ever. <laughs> Holy bananas, it's a girl's leg. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a classic. Old timer, an old timer. Po- poetry, poetry. I am so excited to talk about the first horror film dedicated entirely to NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, I am, I'm, I am so, I'm so, I'm so excited. Where, dear friends, would you like to start? 
I, I think I think one of the things that I find most interesting is that in interviews, Herschel Gordon Lewis refers to this film as a joke. And I think that that it kind of changes changes how we approach it, especially in, in the context of something we'll get on to or we'll get to in just a bit, which is that this was the last in a lot of respects. This is the final of the blood or gore trilogy. Um, this is one of the final splatter films of this particular style, age and genre. And so there is something kind of like. I don't know, there's there, there's a bit of jest to this one, but it kind of varies between. Uh, a playful wink to fans of this kind of dawn of splatter gore, but also this kind of like hollow mocking to the act of creating art in general. Thoughts? Yeah, you, you, <laughs> solved, you solved it. No, lots of thoughts. Um, it's, there, there's this like, Herschel Gordon Lewis movies are really of their time and place. And I think that's why they're so important. He's like, he's, has a reputation as an, as like a true an auteur in a true sense of the word, which I think is actually really deserved. It's a it's not a singular vi- vision. He works with similar editors, uh, often who went on to edit. You know, like the guy who edited this film is the same one who edited Blood Feast, and he went on to edit some, I think the film Heavyweights as well as some uh, television shows oh. in the 1980s and the 90s. Um, we talked about on the 2000 Maniacs episode how HGL's like history in advertising, his work in advertising really informed his, the visions of his films and how they were very, they're very much grounded in a kind of time and place. Um, and I think the sort of the splatter subgenre works really well here to sort of ground, uh, like when, you know, like when, when you look at a film that was made in 1965, you feel like you're sort of just then cresting the wave of things that are going to come in the late 60s and then into Grindhouse in the 70s. But really, it was sort of mm-hmm. like a wrapping up of an idea that would persist in various other forms through HGL. At, like he kept making movies afterwards, obviously. But uh, um, yeah, that really like and we'll talk about it in the case of like the beach party film. But like this, there's this. There's this idea of this film coming out in. Uh, there's this idea of the film coming out in 1965 that I think has that is really meaningful for when we're thinking about how splatter changed over that period of three. I mean, Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, and Color Me Blood Red came out 63, 64, and 65, um, and I'm still kind of blown away by that mm-hmm. fact, actually. And I I totally agree with you in the context of HGL as this as an he's an ad guy he's like he's a he's a madman figure you know he's like uh and in this one he's what's being ad, like the advertising ethos is so much clearer the advertising kind of like sensibility in the editing language is so much more clear because it's like so much of this is like a lifestyle film right it's like it's about living in an expensive gated community and spending too much money on nice cars and art that you don't really like it's like like of course there's a joke in this <laughs> i i do i do appreciate that it retains this kind of like like there's like a in this film i think it's more sedate and i think that that leans into the joking and kind of what Kyle's talking about like the the end of an era in a way but like HDL is a pornographer and this still has that kind of like everything is very libidinal. Everyone is very like sexy and active and wet and everything is opulent and nice. And even the murders are kind of lavish. 
Yeah, the the function of the color of red itself as this kind of mm-hmm. gold, like this kind of treasure worth seeking out and sussing out in order to perfect and refine art in a way that appears to be inaccessible from the perspective of the artist himself. And thus he has to sort of reach into the innards, literally reach into the innards of other people in order to pull out something that's bright enough to catch the attention of the fucking jackals that, yeah. <laughs> that I mean, he's surrounded like, by the worst I, I, people. I, 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 he's like a classic, he's like a classic henpecked sitcom husband. Yeah. Where it's where it's like oh why I oughta <laughs> you know? if I if I if I married you tomorrow I'd divorce you the next day yeah 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 exactly mm-hmm. and it's like he's he he like red being the color of this libidinal color the color of eros the color of like desire mm-hmm. and and eroticism and it means like uh it's very telling that for a film made by a pornographer there's no sex in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, there's the mo- mm-hmm. there's the moment where where, she, where Gigi goes, oh, you know, are you nervous? And the camera just pans down to the to the frame of uh, of a painting, and as as they kind of, it all becomes very chaste all of a sudden. And yet, right at the end, when we're when we're like tying up hot blondes and threatening to murder them, it suddenly becomes like, oh, you go, oh, he's discovered that this is how you access that realm of being, apparently. Yeah, there's there's and no what sex I, what I really relationships enjoy. at all. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, one, one thing I really enjoy about this, in kind of like a formalism zone level, is that like one of the things that HGL is kind of infamous for is like the the like acrylic patina red blood paint. Yeah, as, as an effect, and the fact that it's just like it's literally just like this kind of like tempera red acrylic that he's using as blood that's splattered on everything and on these paintings and on these people. And like, it's so, it feels so kind of self-aware about the death of a particularly visually violent art style. I love when he, when I can't remember which scene it is exactly, but someone's looking at his art and he has the first painting. I think it's when his, uh, um, girlfriend, it, I was I can't I can't remember there's where someone looks at the painting with just the letter F painted on it um in blood he painted in his, that one was painted in his own blood um and they mm-hmm. asked like what what is that and he's like it's a uh impressionist or whatever which is both a pun as well as I think a perfect just like it's uh, it's it's good writing because he chose to use a pun but also, I, I saw I saw that, and I'm just like he could have said he could have just said, oh, it's you know, it's it's bleeblorb art. It's a cert, it's a genre or whatever. He, it was so dismissive and just like <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> like I'm trying to paint big titties. Like yeah, that's that's what my man wants to do. That's what that's all he really wants to do. <sighs> true artist, true artist. Um, this is not just an art movie though. This is not just an art movie. This is a this is a beach movie. This is about. Hanging out at the beach with your boyfriend and your weird friends who dress the same. <laughs> <laughs> that the weird friends who dress the same are the are the ones who the uh, said my favorite line of the film, which is as I said earlier, "Take me out to the ball game, Dad. They're playing games at night." <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I, I I really like that. 
I don't know why exactly. I can, I can, I can always paint socks on my feet. That's another, that's another good yeah, one. Um, just some great HTL <laughs> dialogue in this. Just yeah, some- yeah. The, the, um, I, I bring up, I bring up the beach film, especially because there's this, like, it's also, it has this tonally. Well, and also this is, this is the peak. Um, when the Frankie Avalon film, the first Frankie Avalon film came out in 1963, so it came out in the same year um, as the first of the of the Blood trilogy, um, and so these were sort of, and I, I trust HGL as an observer of popular culture to pick up pretty directly on some of the references that are here, but at the same time, it's obvious if you've seen other a, a couple that jumped to mind were there's the film The Girls on the Beach named after the Beach Boys song, where the the members of the Alpha Beta sorority are about to lose their sorority house <laughs> because a wealthy Texas millionaire who owns many, many properties, <laughs> as they say, um, has decided that he's going to buy up the, the final balloon payment on the sorority house. So they have to look in the newspaper um, to try and raise sums of money to pay $10,000 in two days. Um, there's not always this kind of like direct sort of the, the, this the, this kind of plot outside of the romantic entanglements or whatever, but there's like the sequel. I think Muscle Beach Party, the sequel to the first Frankie Avalon movie, had this kind of element of like there's a rich guy who's coming in and trying to you know you know we all know the tropes you know the rich guy is going to come in and buy the community center, um, and so the kids need to throw a dance party or they need to have a surfing competition, or they need to have a bake-off, or they need to do all of these things to raise money. Um, and it's like, the the politics of the beach film are just the politics of beaches, which we can talk, we'll talk about when we talk about Florida. But like, there's there's this, you know, I there, there there's something very real about the, I just want a party man, but then all of a sudden, Capital shows up and is trying to privatize everything. <laughs> Your secret beach spot. I think that's what I think that was what Muscle Beach Party was about. They have a secret beach surfing spot, and then this really wealthy guy and his his coach and team of bodybuilders, if I recall, if I recall correctly, are coming in and you know messing up the super cool teen party uh, beach spot. Um, Everyone at the time, what's interesting, ever in those films, a lot of the time they still describe this sort of vacation they're on as like Easter break or Easter vacation rather than spring break because the idea of spring break was not really a, as much of a cultural touchstone or in some cases just didn't exist. It was just called something different, but the holiday was still there. So like it makes a lot of sense to retain – this cultural form and sort of, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not just an, it would be a mistake. I think to think of HGL films as inverting their cultural forms rather than just more honestly and intently embodying them. Um, the, a, a beach party film is not as much about the beach as something like color me blood red is because there's, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I think honestly, because this the 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 element of violence there there are violence there are sort of elements of violence sometimes very tough topics in beach party films or in this sort of spring break style film. I think of the movie Where the Boys Are, 
um, which has like a sexual assault in it and that sort of a thing, which it, it's all like, so to take it into the realm of horror is it just, I guess to sum it up, to take it into the realm of horror is to take the beach party film more toward its logical conclusions. Um, or one of my favorite beach party films is a movie within a movie. There's the movie, that thing you do, um, about a, a fake, uh, sort of Beatles-esque mid-60s band called The Wonders who have a have a one-hit, The One-Hit Wonders. Um, and they tour around the country and they end up in California and then they're cast as a band within a film. Um, and the film is called Weekend at Party Pier and they're cast as a fake band called Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Um, classic, classic <laughs> name. Um, but anyways, at one Perfect. point, they're, they're, they're doing all of this sort of just kind of filming. Okay, you're filming, you're partying, everyone's party. And then a few characters, it's a probably a three-minute scene. But a, a few characters, they're all sort of dancing to this band on the beach or whatever. And the, the last line you hear, a filmed dialogue of the movie in the movie, is, We're being invaded! So it's a beach party movie, but it's also, it seems like an alien invasion film. But it's just called Weekend at Party Pier. And this is the kind of like, like that's what the beach film always was. It was waiting to be sort of drawn to its logical conclusions, but it was kind of being limited by the fact that it was, you know, beach party films were created and sponsored by literally one major production company for, there were seven of them throughout the 1960s, all basically produced by the same production company. And this uh, across uh, other studios did uh, um, uh, basically their own version of it. But the Beach Party film really came from sort of one corner of the film industry. And so all of a sudden you had all of these films that looked very similar, but that were ultimately restrained by the form itself. Well, Herschel Gordon Lewis um, will not be restrained by anybody, um, <laughs> as we know. Fuck you. you know. But that, that's like the, the advertisement slash pornographer slash horror, splatter horror guy is the guy to take probably any genre of film to its logical conclusions. But I think there's this very interesting social map that really just kind of like this guy is doing commentary on popular culture in that time. That is so remarkable um, through these, you know, $50,000 like Florida movies with like seven people in them or whatever. All of a sudden the whole genre gets pulled apart because it, the, the whole, the whole genre is split apart from within the inside Right, he comes up in the inside and just kind of bursts out of it in this disgusting, messy, ugly thing. But it's just like, yeah, this is what was going to happen. It's you know, the body after bloat, after death. Right? Like, I don't know. Fuck yeah! See, this this is why we have Labor Kyle on the show. <laughs> I went to the beach a lot. Be- beautiful, like beautiful beach content. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love. I haven't been to a beach in so I long. I love the idea of HGL as like the 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 chestburster within the perceived idyll of like nineteen yeah. sixties American popular culture. Yeah, there's like the and this this works so well too in like the post war context, right? Post war America mm-hmm. was one big beach party, you know, from from this hegemonic point of view, right? And like HGL kind of embodying the rupture that that actually was, and it. This is very much the breaking of a wave, this movie. Because, like, the kind of, like, as Kyle mentioned earlier, that grindhouse that's going to come next. It's it's darker. It's grittier. It's like, you know, there, there's an optimism in these movies that I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But this is also a movie about 
uh, uh, Gregor Gregorovich, the film critic. No, film critic. Oh my God, I'm projecting. (laughs) (laughs) It was bound to happen at some point. So uh, I I'm super fascinated by this character, and I'm su- I I find the idea of like the the cultural representation of critics really interesting. There's like uh, especially in cinema, like uh, Theater of Blood, obviously the Vincent Price film where he murders all of the film critics. There's mm-hmm. uh, the Wachowskis Cloud Atlas adaptation, which Tom Hanks took the role because he gets to murder a critic in it. <laughs> he gets to th- gets to, gets to throw him off like a fourth floor balcony. Uh, like critics are often this kind of like hyper disposable. Like culture has its revenge on criticism preemptively within its own text. Uh, and I, I I don't know. I guess it's just interesting to see a film that goes. No artists do want do want good reviews, but the critic in this is really only there to. <clears throat> be a sort of like ex almost a kind of father figure right an external patriarch determining value oh yeah i think this is one of like the kind of like negative capitalistic functions of the art critic right it's to be and not to use i hate this parlance but like to essentially to literally be a gatekeeper to value yeah right like gregorovich isn't isn't there to kind of like make commentary on the art and to 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 do some kind of like interpretation of it he's he's there to signal to rich people that these paintings are worth money the critic is the prescriber of value um in in a commodified art form you know so the critic the criticism itself becomes commodity um and serves a purely it's, it's a purely functional apparatus offers no greater gain outside of the financialization of art right yeah absolutely absolutely this is the kind of depressing thing which is like you have criticism of art or even criticism as art as a kind of addendum to a broader financialization of a mode of cultural production which is on its most surface level completely useless in any sort of exchange value right painting uh, you know uh what the earliest the earliest paintings found are about 12 to fifteen thousand years old mm-hmm. and they are uh in strict economic terms art is kind of useless art has to be made valuable value has to be conferred and the easiest way of conferring value is through imposed scarcity so critics then are not like the uh, the entire point of this model of criticism is to do nothing other than limit access right rather than talk mm-hmm. about the ways in which art is it has a sort of universalist function. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Any any parting parting thoughts as we exit exit the formalism zone and begin to paint our discourse for this episode? <laughs> um no. No, I don't think so. Sweet. Let's Excellent. let's do Excellent. it. Well, Let's uh, let's let's meet meet down at Party Beach and extract the human soul via vile alchemies to create money. Uh, yeah, real Walter Benjamin hours. Who up? <laughs> let's <laughs> let's talk about the work of art in the age of mechanical, mechanical reproduction, reproduction, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, Walter, Walter Benjamin, eyes emoji, eyes emoji. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, like, I, mild, a mild point that we'll probably get into in a little bit, but John Berger has this really interesting point where he talks about um, the depiction of gold in paintings. Uh, mm-hmm. If gold and the the historical moment at which gold stopped being depicted within paintings, and gold was the thing that you put around paintings, because because it uh in it kind of echoes the enclosure of land, right? Um, and there's this idea that actually the representation of value is not necessarily about what what is being represented internally to the to the to the art as text but rather in the acquisition and kind of like the frame around the painting is where the value is construed, right? Which is your ownership of the commodity, not the nature of the commodity itself. Because right. I, I think on a certain level, people know that art is not kind of, in, has no, in, like it's fetishized in the Marxist sense of the term, right? This is why this is why Damien Hirst can make m- millions of dollars like setting his work on fire and turning it into NFTs, the fucking hack. <laughs> but But like, it it kind of ties in so nicely to to Benjamin's essay because I think I think it's only by the sixties that that starts to be translated into English. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of the ways in which photography has and other mechanical means of reproduction have made art into this thing which has been, uh, I suppose, Berger would say, deglamorized. That no longer has its has its aura about it. And so how do you how do you get how do you get that? How do you get the authenticity back into art? And in in the in the context of art financialization, the only way that you can do that is the only way that you can do that with any commodity. And that's by literally pouring blood into it. Yeah. Fuck the, yeah. Well, the, the, it's it's interesting how it becomes this forced re-ritualization of art, like the the politicization of art of the function of art, an initial reversal from the sort of as Benjamin talks about. He talks about a he talks about prints and originals, um, and and to what degree a work of art is an art is art in a process of reproduction. Um, and so, but it's, it's almost for, you're forced to now in this very, almost, it, it's almost a mania. What is being expressed in this obsession with a particular color. Um, there are many manias with that are obsessions with color or the absence of color. Um, and it's mania as this destructive language something that's already like implying its own destruction through a particular obsession thus becomes a, it, it thus always becomes, I mean, I think considering the, especially considering after the 17th and 18th and 19th century with, you know, manic and the manic and the mania um, being sort of confined and restrained and given a particular taxonomy and social institutions that ultimately we find that the only way to ceremonialize artistic production and is to become obsessed and not just with art and not just with like before it was the sort the sort of 
the obsessions of particular familiar drives, right? Our boy, we've talked, we've nodded to it before, but our boy was really into uh, painting some big titties in uh, at the beginning of this movie, just big old titties, um, and that's what he wanted to show everybody. But people didn't critics uh, the uh, the uh, cucked liberal Joe Brandon critics um, can't handle. <laughs> Um, uh, big old titties, and thus he needs to sort of. He has to become manic in order, and he has to sort of like. He he has he has to. He has to find purpose in artistic production, um, and if that purpose exists outside of you know he goes throughout the film and people are he. People aren't giving him any money for his big titty paintings and then they don't want and all of a sudden they want it. Now there's blood on it and he doesn't want to sell it to them now because none of it like all of a sudden this, you know, this process of exchange has been disrupted yet again. And no one understands what he means by the fact that he all of a sudden he doesn't want someone he doesn't want to sell his paintings or he will give a painting away for free or all of that. Like and it's because it. It's not the ground of his obsession anymore. The ground of his obsession is red. Um, yeah. uh, there's yeah. a particular, there's a particularity to that obsession. There's a particularity mm-hmm. to that, that obsession because it has to be right because it's because it's uh, contained within what are explicitly coded as like sexual or or erotic terms. Yeah. Um, like which is why the his final attempted kill is just a restaging of the very first one. Right. It's right. it's it's a super particular mode of obsession, and I think the the interesting artistic contrast here is to like less than a decade earlier 1958 was the first implementation of ikb international klein Mm. blue developed by eve klein which blue being like the color like uh, almost the color of melancholic uh but very very specifically being the color of the infinite uh Mm. i'm thinking of like derek jarman's incredible film blue which is just a blue screen for like an hour and a half Mm -hmm. like because it's about it's when you stop seeing the specific that you you know out of it came out of the clear blue sky right there's a there, the blue is the color of the infinite and the general the universal category which then collapses uh, it makes a lot of sense that this would emerge in like the late 50s right that era of kind of like universalist hegemonic uh, american success and then it collapses into the 60s into this intensely libidinal obsessional drive to try and get at some sort of authentic human nature that has been subsumed into the, the financialization of everything. 60s is also when Marcuse is writing about the collapse of the autonomous zone of art, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in the one-dimensional man um, where where art is no longer this thing that kind of has any autonomy outside of the, the, the uh, outside of capitalism itself. So the, and the other thing I wanted to, I wanted to bring up was, like what kind of art is being produced in this moment when art itself is starting to collapse into into the market that it's formerly tried to be oppositional to, right? And the the most famous thing that came to mind, 1965, is um, Andy Warhol's portrait of Elizabeth Taylor, right? It's these flat, endlessly reproducible, endlessly commodifiable, endlessly malleable forms, right? And aside from his from his uh, b- big titty goth girlfriend sketches. Like his work is his work is this kind of weird ab- mm-hmm. abstracted violence 
like there's an aesthetic kind of alienation or that is or, always already present within the concept of not just his art but any conception of art within this film from the outset yeah he's very uneasy even at the very beginning um he there the the sort his drives are fully encapsulated in the types of art that's shown in what was this almost formless and that was you know probably what's interesting about it is this almost formless um aggression in painting is given greater context or really integrated into um the uh, goth gf sort of part of his art through the application of blood all of a sudden it's not like you know because it's not the it's not the it's not the the subject on the page bleeding but it's blood a plot on the page on the canvas but it's blood applied to the canvas um he he then kills the woman in the painting but at the same time she's all she's already dead and the the blood is bringing the i don't know the blood is bringing the painting back to life in a way it it's it's an acknowledgement of the as you were talking about john the um uh the imbalance between the production of the artwork itself and the ex, the extravagance of a gold frame as we see in the what is it that was 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 it the very last line in the movie where they're burning his heart and say and they say you could have at least saved the frame right is that what it was yes yes that's the very very final line is is you could at least have saved the frame and i think that's so it's so bizarrely instructive for the entire thing because like you know like him him painting uh an abstracted version of of a real life woman who lives with him and and coming to desire that more than her and like not even really desire the painting but desire recognition as as john was saying about this weird fatherly figure his weird attachment he's developed to gregorovich the critic and in the end like all of this murder all of this mayhem and and they're they're still like oh well you know we could have extracted further resources we could have resold that frame for 20 bucks or whatever like the yeah, yeah the, frame, the frame only has absolutely. value as like a surplus material too it's not like they were planning to like oh we could exhibit that frame and sell that for tens of thousands it's no they're like they're they're like pulling out fillings and trying to resell copper wire at the end of this yeah and it, and like it's so it's so telling of the uh of that shift from a kind of like idea of a sort of universalized capitalism into something which uh, like it's the start it's the start of like the if you if you if you see if you see uh the first half of the 20th century is essentially the collapsing of the 19th century uh in terms of like the age of sort of like uh empire in its traditional form the 20th century is about the establishment of a, of a new mode of financial empire uh based off the dollar right so like you have the 50s where it's the american boom time and then you have in the 60s you have the beginning of like 
capitalism that will take the very blood out of your body, right? Where it's like, it's no longer the optimized system that we're all delighted to live in. It's when you start to feel the hand on the scruff of your neck, right? The free hand of the market suddenly kind of clamping around your windpipe, where it's like everything about you has to be made into something that is commodifiable. And it's like, uh, you see the the I, I kind of joked at the beginning that like it's about it's a it's a film about NFTs, but you see you see the kind of like the beginnings of this, right? The idea of like does does this art have any value becomes a meaningless question unless you can put dollar value. And really, what what is the dollar value we could put? on a big titty nft is it is it several hundred million is it is it three cents it's impossible to say well it's the the like the logic of capital is something that like the 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 fine art is a useful way and people you know obviously we're not the first people at all to point this kind of a thing out but fine art is a useful plane on which if you will to critique the sort of like primary functions of capitalism and you know it's you know necessary and unpredictable periods of boom and bust that lead to these like the weird ways that we talk about property and we talk about land and we think about land and like the fact that this movie is set in florida as was filmed in florida um not just in Florida, but in very, very, very close to the part of Florida that I grew up in to where the beaches feel very recognizable in a lot of ways is perfect. I mean, coming out in 65 and filming it presumably earlier that year, the year before that, it was in filming it in Sarasota. um, It feels like there there weren't as a lot of, I don't think there were as many films that were uh, set or shot in Sarasota as like Fort Lauderdale, for example, a couple of the movies that I mentioned earlier when we were talking about beach films were set in Fort Lauderdale, where the boys are that one, um, and follow the boys. Uh, those are, those are both uh, set in South Florida. Um, but Sarasota was like this, it, it followed, it followed the sort of boom in Florida in an interesting way. And like, it was really, really tiny and small, and incorporated as a town a couple of times the first time with like 50 people in it um after the civil war but then it hit the general florida boom in the early 20th century fell back with the great depression and uh all the while this like the circus came to town ringling brothers circus is in sarasota um but then you know started booming in the 50- 1950s as well so this would be the mill film the greatest show on earth there um and there's Sarasota is set alongside a series of keys, including Siesta Key, Longboat Key, Lido Key, Bird Key, Casey Key, um, and the worst of evil fucking rich people live there. Um, it it caught the the I think that it's been a long time since I've looked at this information, but the median household income in Siesta Key it has to be over a hundred thousand um, dollars. There's not a single poor person who lives there. There's a whole bunch of poor people who work along Siesta Key because Siesta Key is this really popular shopping plaza and it's also has very highly ranked and well-respected beaches. So they get put on travel channel lists and shit like that. Um, Fun fact, Stephen King lives in Siesta Key part-time. 
Um, a lot of people that I know growing up saw him in person huh. um, because he has a mansion out there. Um, so, oh, yeah, when he was like just like doing pills and playing tennis or whatever, he was talking about Florida. Um, he was talking about where this movie we're talking <laughs> about was shot. Um, but uh, so like. I mean, to be completely honest, when Color Me Blood Red was filmed there, I don't know if Sarasota had yet integrated its species. So, like, there's that. There's mm, that. Very good point. There's that element. I wow. mean, the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And then, but like, there were cities in Florida, and I think Sarasota was one of them that sort of reasserted uh, with bans on interracial beaches, like at the city level and the mm-hmm. town level. I'm pretty sure Sarasota was one of them. And like the thing about Florida yeah. that's important to understand is that the beaches are not like there is more privately owned beach land than there is public. It's 60 to 50, it's 60 to 40%. So, and in Sarasota, that number goes up to 80%. And these are private of privatized beaches. Now there is a few years ago, and I'm going to fuck up the politics on this because it's, it's just been a couple of years and the past few years have been a blur. They were basically trying to make it there, there are certain ways that they're trying to enforce that people aren't able to walk on certain parts of the beach. This is the fucking beach. This is the thing that wraps around the entire state. For like, if we can just like, you know, say the quiet part loudly or whatever. This is the it's it. This is like it, it's the thing that supposedly you're supposed to be able to. It's like it's it's the the thing about public land is that it's not public. That the, the there is a, an illusion of the public, and what is actually public is often so much partially privatized, and like there's these there there's constantly this part of capital that is asserting the idea that you can't walk that way, you can't walk from if you step from this if you take one step forward, you are trespassing on private land, and we're going to call the cops and we're going to enforce that, and like it, it's like. When we look at that, we know that that doesn't make logical sense. But then capitalism has this way of coming in and reasserting itself through these fundamental logics of, you know, private property and land ownership that are like, well, that person has that and that's how it is. It's It becomes all of this sort of like about, you know, respecting certain ideas that have been around for, you know, only a couple of hundred years like giving giving them almost a theological so an almost a, a power of divinity um and then all of a sudden we're realizing that the the source of the divine is coming from the assertions of private capital like your access to sex and joy and meaning and even violence and the 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 things the things that lie you know beyond our current circumstances that offer potential for something different um on the one hand something you know terrifying but on the other hand the act the actual the actuality of some kind of possibility as a bad sentence but you know what i mean the but like an art helps us express the latter both the former and the latter of these the horrific and the hopeful um I think it really comes down to why these movies are always have this kind of sense of hope in them. It's because in their critique, they're they're able to leverage art against the retain the retention and uh, monitoring of private property on behalf of the wealthy. All of a sudden, art doesn't 
like what, what oh what's this painting i don't know impressionism you know whatever <laughs> like 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 let, let's let's see, let's see what's in your organs or whatever <laughs> like like there all of the all of the restraint and respectability and the necessary like you can't be here at this time not because of a public safety thing that's why you know public beaches aren't open at night but uh, in part but also in part just to control just to control you and to tell you what things mean and why and why they are the way that they are because of the sort of like the divine sense and the divine meaning of capital like you know art is only art when it is worth being art you know like sex sex and expression there is no sexed relationships all relationships are social and if all social relationships are being fundamentally like are being driven through the bottleneck of of like capitalist subjectivity then i don't know what there is to like i don't you know i don't i don't know i'm ba- i'm bailing i'm bailing <laughs> pontoon bicycle and get out of here mm-hmm. quick quick two and a half mile an hour i'm really flying I mean, I, I think I think you're completely correct, right? And I think I, I mean, like, like so, the pontoon bicycles in this movie kind of hypnotized me for a bit. You know, I was I was really, really, really captivated with their with their presence in the film because horror and like American vehicular culture are are so interwoven, right? Cars are simultaneously the thing that you absolutely need in order to escape the coming zombie horde, and the only way to stay mobile and free in a world that's collapsing. And they're also this completely unreliable thing that even if it's brand new, it's it's not going to start when Michael Myers is two steps away. And I think that this movie, like, you know, like there's a bunch of lavish car shots, but it spends all of its time watching people frustratingly try to navigate on pontoon boats while pretending to talk about how much fun they're having. And I, and like you could you could just feel the fact that like they knew a guy who had pontoon boats like whoever owned this beach or like like whoever like had the resort nearby like let them borrow pontoon boats for a credit i think the one of the things that you're you're bringing up uh Kyle is something i wanted to talk about which is um the 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 relation the relationship between capital and, and uh wealth and access to to land and to space i i think is super important um there's there's a great Mike Davis essay about uh, the Malibu coast in California, which is called the case for letting Malibu burn, which is it's just such a just a what a ah oh, I miss I, I miss Mike Davis a lot because what a fucking cool move to just tell all of those rich people that their houses yeah should burn down to the ground because you shouldn't can live there, and I can't help but think like. Is there something similar happening with like the Florida Keys that like in the advent of climate change, the ever increasing amount of uh, really devastating storms that are hitting that area, the fact that so much of this land is privatized and uh, access to this this space is so tightly controlled, not just through through political power, but through economic power and lobbying. I'm like, is there a case for like letting the florida let, letting letting the sea take the florida keys <laughs> they're like well the co- the thing about the even on the gulf coast which is where in over where sarasota is there is like an incredible disparity in the like it, because like if you go north 
from Sarasota a little bit into Manatee County. Sarasota was originally a part of Manatee County into Bradenton, which is the on the, the western side of the town that I lived in. Um, that's where not only one of the biggest public beaches is, but that's Anna Maria Island is like now. It, I'm sure poor people are completely priced out of Anna Maria Island now. Um, I'm sure they were in many ways then. But at the same time, it was a slightly different place. There was this, like, it, 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 there's a reason why I think of it as something that would inevitably get fully consumed by the, you know, richest of the rich in that area um, in the way in the way that Sarasota has, um, because it's not entirely that, right? You know, public beaches are fucking awesome uh and you can go and you can get a really giant hot dog and just a basket full of fried potatoes and um if you're if you're smart about about it you can bring your beer bring beer in um kids can kids have like so much freedom to roam and play and find things and collect things and take it back with them. And it has this, like, there's so much, there's so much great, there's so much good stuff to be had in beach culture that you find in all of these films that we've been talking about. But the problem is that there's inevitably this element lurking behind the scenes. That's constantly in, it is, it is impeding actual community by either financializing and all, all of it, or by um, sort of like you know maintaining its constant integrated presence in public life, you know it's all things are always going to eventually get priced out for you. It's just a matter of time when the when the when the regular the good thing becomes the shitty thing, and when the shitting thing is taken away forever. Like in fifty years, those beaches are yeah. going to be for the rich and their uh, guard dog robots. Yeah. And they're going to take it all away from all of us. And then they're going to blame us for the fact that they're getting destroyed and eroded by climate change. It's going to be our fault somehow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah. that's exactly Davis's argument about like houses in Malibu, right? Which is the growth of property as well as like total fire suppression in Malibu yeah. in order to defend those houses has simply just mm -hmm. compounded all of the problems. And so you end up with the with the very rich and wealthiest kind of like blocking access to a very beautiful part of California, making it completely in, impossible for anyone ordinary to live there, whilst at the same time blaming those people for the fact that their houses keep burning down. But at the same time, you have developers who still continue to insist on bu building bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger houses there. And it's like surely the same thing is going to happen in all of these beautiful, these beautiful, what should be beautiful public shared open decommodified spaces where in fact you might actually find ways of achieving some kind of um kind of restoration of systems of life between uh between a, in a kind of network of ecology and instead you have this constant drive towards the private the both privatization and expansion of that privatization which can which doesn't just kind of intensify problems but does so exponentially and we see this we see this in the movie too and i think this this movie kind of stands out from hgl's catalog a lot of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies like openly depict poor people, people economically suffering, immigrants. Like, there, there's a lot of uh, you know outsider presence in HGL's movie, except for Color Me Blood Red. Mm -hmm. Everyone in this movie is wealthy. No one in this movie is suffering. Even Sorg, he, he he's in he's in an artistic, depressive, hedonic turn, you know. But if if he's already at the point where 
famous art critics are waiting for him to show up to galleries and and rich people are already willing to pay more for his paintings than they are for Picasso. He's he's already doing yeah, all right. He's fine. Yeah. He's fine. <laughs> so what, what, we're witch, what we're witnessing in this movie is exactly what you're talking about in this essay, right? Like th- this is already the the depressive hedonic playground for the ultra wealthy. Everyone, everyone who actually has to do the working has been exiled from the space of the cinema. You know, like like uh, uh, Sorg doesn't even deign to like kill kill a, a housemaid or a postman or a garbage man or a, a janitor or something. He's only vacuuming up the ultra wealthy because the poor are that excised from these communities. Speaking about excising things, we are nearly reaching an hour on this episode. Uh, so shall we shall we move to our closing argumentation, uh, gentlemen of the court? Uh, well, I think we have to talk about we have to talk about uh, we've been dancing around this. We've been dancing around marriage. And Just say it with titties. The painting of the big old titties. We've been talk like it's we got we got to talk about it. We got. Why won't anybody buy Sorg's painting of the big naturals? Like this is this is the central problem. No, in the film. no. You see, the problem that all he needed to do is he needed to go to Dal E two and type in the following <laughs> words: <laughs> beautiful, beautiful anime wife, traditional, traditional Catholic, enormous breasts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> pastoral um and then yeah just whatever comes out that's whatever eldritch horror pops out um that's your wife now and you have to marry her um because <laughs> because this is this is like i say this has the kind of like energy of like a 60s sitcom where it's like the the wife who keeps bothering him by being really into him and being super attractive <laughs> where he's just like no, I have to do my oh, uh, and she's like, oh, there he goes again, the big schmuck. But I love him, so I I do not understand this. I'm I'm fascinated by how this film kind of treats the idea of relationships. I, and I find a lot of HDL's antagonists are are very open, like Fuad Ramses. There's a lot of sympathy you can have with that character, the Wizard of Gore. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as well, but yep. but um, when when it comes to Sorg, this this dude is like I don't even feel for him as a suffering artist with his with his little beach house and his nineteen little pontoon bicycles. Like I there, there there's like no <laughs> at no point do I feel that he's striving for something greater. He's just mad that Grigorovich doesn't like his paintings, and he's not even mad. He, he's he's just he's just vexed by it. In, 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 this, in the same way that, like, somebody would get upset at, at a slightly bad haircut. You know, like, like there's nothing deeper in Sorg's character. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no lust. There's no hunger. Except for big titties. I guess, I guess we should put that out there, though. He does want one thing on this earth, and that's, that's, that's the AI-generated uh, big-titty goth girlfriend traditional Catholic centaur where there's just, like, stacks of increasingly larger breasts. That is something that Sorg desires. It's just, it, it is just really funny to me when his uh, uh, ball-busting girlfriend comes in um, and he's like, I made a painting of you. <laughs> And she, 
She is the just. It's it's. Can you imagine if you're if you're someone's partner or girlfriend? Can you imagine walking in and they're just like, "I made a painting of you," and it's kind of you, but it's with the most enormous breasts you've ever seen. Uh, oh, oh, wow! That is now, something. Thank you. Now this 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 begs an incredibly dark question because assuredly this has happened in art and literature and film. But it only occurs to me now that someone has gone to Dolly and been like, big busty anime, gigantic gravity defying super titties, comma, my loving girlfriend of five years or whatever. (laughs) I made this for you. Happy Valentine's Day, sweetie. You're my anime waifu. Let me let me reduce you to a product. This kind of given this kind of like subtext. Are we then claiming that this film sits within the lineage of cinema that brought us things like Piranha Three Double D? Yes, this is this is Piranha Three Double D and its precursors. Hours like, and and I, I think that there's this is this is always an interesting space to walk with with this kind of like splatter, low budget horror, like the, the line between horror and pornography and horror and softcore, at least horror and girly movies. Um, really overlaps here, and I think like the thing—the thing that I find, or one, oh God, I find so much of this interesting. I find so much of these big anime traditional Catholic titties, Slavic girl <laughs> AI generator, so fascinating, <laughs> and I think we need to study them further. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. 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 But the thing—the thing that's 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 kind of interesting about this movie is that like it's you know like his his paintings aren't worth anything until literally the blood of women is extracted and put into them. You know, like the, the the blood of these other groups of people, like that's what is needed to turn this into value, right? Like the literal violence of an oppressive system is required. Like this is this is the most John Berger movie humanly possible. <laughs> yeah, that's jo- John true. John Berger uh, uh, anime girlfriend <laughs> waifu pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Someone's got to. Oh, do not put that into ways of seeing. Do not put that into ways of. No. (laughs) Oh my God! Ways of seeing would have been just too psychically powerful if it had anime AI girlfriend titty. I I know how to use Premiere. I can do this. Oh dear! (laughs) Do it. Make make the most devastatingly powerful text. Twitter is still here. We need it. We need one. This is we're we're riding into the sunset. We need one final hurrah. <laughs> it, but you know, like that's kind of the thing too, right? So this this absent presence of the feminine in this movie, like women are vehicles for like, you know, like the, again, this is for, like this is what Berger, Berger talks about this when he talks about like women in paintings, right? You paint a you paint a beautiful nude woman holding a mirror, and you call that vanity. But you painted her. You put that mirror in her hand. You made her anime titties stacked on top of each other like a horse, centaur, beast. Like, you know, like there's, there, there's, a, the, the, like one of the absences of this movie is like patriarchal violence is taken for granted here. It's just a given that it would always wind up this way. Yeah, uh, you painted a naked woman because you enjoyed looking at her. Put a mirror in her hand. And you call the painting vanity, thus morally condemning the woman whose nakedness you had depicted for your own pleasure. Yeah. Uh, read Ways of Seeing. I can't keep telling you all. I can't keep telling. It's 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 mandatory. You all have Berger to read Ways winning. of Seeing. Jesus. <laughs> all right. So, 
final thoughts, final questions, final Dolly AI prompts in order to achieve the most horrifically uh, deformed titties humanly possible. Um, well, I don't know. So my final thoughts are there's this thing, um, in wildland firefighting that people are maybe not quite as familiar with, um, but probably are kind of familiar with with this, this idea of the controlled burn. Um, you know, we were talking about the, you know, fires out West and the class character, the class characteristic of the climate crisis, um, and all of that stuff. And it, it made me think about controlled burning because it's a, it's a method that, um, either, you know, I think only state, I think only state organizations, I don't know. So towns might hire out private firefighting crews out West to do prescribed burning, but it's a method that is used to minimize the impact of forest, of forest fires that will occur. Um, it, you, you do think you can do a thing called broadcast burning, um, which is, you know, something they do a lot out West. So when the tree lacks a canopy, you basically go around and you light brush, uh, and burn off the fuel that is used in a while that the wildfire uses to continue itself. The way that they put a wildfire out is they go and they dig, a, they dig a line in the dirt around it. That's to basically cut off its fuel supply. Um, the reason why California wildfires in wildfires out west, a big part of why they've gotten the way that they are, isn't just because of you know the sh- the shifts and change in the climate, but because rather than being able to consistently perform control bur- controlled burns and prescribed burning, um, pile burning too is another way to do it. It's when you that's when you cut off all the underbrush and you put it in a pile and burn that. Maybe when it's like not safe to do a broadcast burn. Um, or to, to make to basically do a larger controlled burn, but you you can't do that when rich people keep putting their fucking houses on the nicest correct like, the the nicest land that we're supposed to be supposedly sharing. Um, you can't perform controlled burns, and anytime a fire starts and threatens some rich asshole's fucking property, they would hire crews private forces or the or the public too to go out and put it out the reason that what that that fire itself was a control that was nature's controlled burn i'm not trying to get all eco eco ideology redacted here i promise uh this is there's a cla- there's a fundamental class composition to this not only are they going to like they're going to while they're taking away the land that we should all be able to share with one another and use to take care of one another on they're going to continue buying things on the internet and driving them into the ground exploding rockets in the middle of air and patting themselves on the back when they go to space and threaten to take all of that away from you they're going to do it this this is this is the inevitable conclusion and the logic of the conditions that we live in um the beach the those memories and those cherished moments you know, of actual like bonds and kinship, you know, we've done, we've done all this growing and, you know, have good politics. So now we can go back and revisit family and kinship and try and extract, you know, good, positive, non-reactionary meanings out of these relationships and these memories. And that is all going to get taken away from you. And if that sounds like a threat, it's because it is like, we're already on, we're on, we're on, we're on defense. 
no no art will be able to maintain and retain it's any, any level of meaning outside of its commodification and it's being sold in a pile, uh, being sold that's being sold as an NFT after being burned in a fire. You might as well be in that. You might as well be in that pyre yourself, um, because there's just no, there's no hope without a confrontation to, of this. There's no hope, first of all, without as we saw from the movie today of the exca- the excavation of what it means to express yourselves in capitalist subjectivity, what it means to try and make art and be unable to make quote make capital A quote unquote art in the way that's required and necessitated of you, what this does to the richest among us, um, and how it drives them crazy, and how that those those manias are core expressions of the fundamental problems that they caused in the first place. Um, no amount of controlled burning is going to do what needs to happen at this point. There's no reduction in their fuel. They have all the money. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> but like a, a movie that makes me think about the beach this much inevitably makes me think about like, you know, all that public space, all that good um, that's going to be bought and sold um, and then destroyed and they're going to blame you for it. Um, so, yeah, watch uh, watch Color Me Blood Red. Then watch The Girls on the Beach. That one's really weird <laughs> um, and funny to me. Um, and yeah, protect the Alpha Beta Sorority House. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a, a left wing militia Get to defend the Alpha Beta Sorority House. <laughs> the best way, uh, dear <laughs> listeners, to protect the Alpha Beta Sorority House is head to patreon.com slash laborkyle, YouTube slash laborkyle, as long as it still exists, Twitter at laborkyle, and in general, uh, write laborkyle on, on, on an ancient stone tablet and place $100 bills beneath it, and they will apparate where they need to. Like, but Kyle's, Kyle's right, though. Kyle's right. Like, on... on, on on a very foundational level, the urge to create, to to feel the generative pleasure of of making something new in the world is the very core essence of art, right? And the very beautiful thing about it is that it is in the use uh, and exchange value logic of capitalism fundamentally kind of useless. It has no has no use. Sitting, uh, sitting and writing uh, poetry, or about your day, or learning to sketch, or uh, learning how to write music and sing songs—like all of these beautiful things—are they're useless? They, they, they have no exchange use, but they get entered into this network, into this appropriative, uh, totalizing logic that seeks to do a kind of substitution, substitute. The feeling of sitting, uh, sitting by the sea, uh, writing while your friends hang out with you to substitute that ephemeral, beautiful human moment. The metaverse, for, uh, a dollars and cents price tag. <laughs> the, the metaverse. That's you what can it do is, all of right? this in and the metaverse. The, and here's the thing. Here's the thing that drives me, that should drive you kind of incandescent with rage is that the financialization of this is taken to such an, a kind of absurd degree in our current context that the very thing itself disappears. Mm-hmm. 
right? The 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 beach no long is no longer there, right? It has been closed off. It's been walled up and gated away from you who deserve it. Um, ooh, ooh, that's good. I think that's that's a strong place to end the episode. That's nothing right. is too good for the working classes <laughs> or for the for, for right. the, alpha beta for the alpha beta sorority <laughs> which is the working class yep. we are the hot we oh, are all the you. hot beach babes in the alpha beta sorority <laughs> that, there we go okay that's a vision go. of communism that we can all get that's, that's beautiful <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.